Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing and Protection Magic, also Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Kathleen Martin. Thank you for coming back on today. Thank you. Great to be back with you again. Yes. So um, last time we talked a lot about um, your your aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill. Um, mm-hmm. So and that was a fantastic conversation. I was just reading, actually, I started reading um, a book called um, Alien Lives Matter. Um, it's okay to be gray. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the first things it, it mentions, though, is that um, one of the first known abductees was your was black. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was kind of a funny intro to that book. Yes. Um, however, recently I read your book on um, extraterrestrial contact, and um, mm-hmm. it was about how to handle um, you know being abducted and some of your experiences with being an investigator at MUFON. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was really interesting because you cover all different types of abductions, you know, not just the typical ones. Um, right. So what are some of the cases? Like, like well, first, actually, I, mean, I kind of know how you got into MUFON, obviously. Um, but how did you get MUFON to move a little bit from just investigating sightings to investigating actual contact? Well, in 2011, the Mutual UFO Network um, director at that time, Clifford Clift, asked me to take a position as the head of uh, an alien abduction arm of the MUFON investigative group. And so I, he just wanted me to help MUFON out because I had a, a recognizable name and had done a great deal of research over the years. And so I accepted that. At that point, there were only three of us on the team. And uh, as time grew uh, and and passed, our team grew. There are now 55 people. Oh, wow. And I'm no longer the director. I recently stepped (laughs) down due to time constraints. I'm just Mm -hmm. crazy busy. But uh, anyway, during that 10 years when I was the director, uh, we uh, did research that would, uh, that brought forth a lot more information. Now, MUFON is still pretty much materially oriented, nuts and bolts in their investigative group. But the experiencer research team that I had up, when we were called in to a regular MUFON investigation, we used our own protocols and we insisted that all of the information 
be given, mm -hmm. that we would not exclude anything paranormal or possibly interdimensional. Uh, so we included everything when we were doing our investigation. Now, that wasn't our only purpose. Uh, the members of the group speak with experiencers or people who think they might be on a day-to-day -day basis in order to uh, give them non-judgmental listening, some assistance if they need it, and locating a support group or uh, a psychotherapist or hypnotherapist who knows something about this topic. They're all vetted and approved by a team. So uh, that's essentially it in a nutshell is that, you know, this evolved and I started to actually show evidence of this, this interdimensional or paranormal mm -hmm. contact. I had one case that I wrote about in fact, not fact fiction and flying saucers. That's another book I wrote <laughs> with Stanton Friedman, um, extraterrestrial contact, what to do when you've been abducted. So, uh, this man's name, he, he permitted me to use his name, Jim Schaefer, uh, had his first um, or made his first report to the Mutual UFO Network in 2012. And I was called in at that time, relatively new in setting up the committee. Uh, and so I began my investigation of a close encounter he had had. And then a uh, few months, maybe three months later, he got in touch with me personally and, and said uh, that something had happened. He thought he'd been abducted. So uh, I asked him, well, what ev evidence do, do you have? Um, you know, what happened? What do you remember? And he said that he had woken up. Uh, he was wearing a, a tan colored T-shirt. And it was just drenched when he was, when uh, he, it wasn't like he had just woken up. He was awake reading a newspaper when all of a sudden uh, time passed. He hadn't fallen asleep. He was convinced of that. But he had come back to consciousness feeling very shaky. His T-shirt was just drenched. Uh, there were other things, too. Uh, he had a new uh, kind of lump on his arm that hadn't been there before, and he had other marks on his body, like there was some kind of struggle, and something had held him very tightly bilaterally on his upper arms. So, um, well, collect evidence, collect photographs of what he has there. Um collect, uh, I told him, he didn't know why, but I told him I wanted him to take that t-shirt and to put it into a paper bag and to put it into a closet in his home, a place that was just heated, not, you know, not out on the back porch where mm -hmm. it would be cold and to take it out in two weeks and let me know what he saw. So he did, he pulled it out and it was now coated with pink. So then I'm wondering why this discoloration, right? Because Betty Hill, my aunt's dress, ended up with a pink powder yeah. on it. So uh, I had him send that t-shirt to me. 
And then I got approval from MUFON and I sent it to uh, Phyllis Budinger, who is an analytical chemist. And uh, she worked for BP Amico and uh, formerly Standard Oil for uh, 35 years uh, as an analytical chemist, uh, attempting to identify uh, substances that were very difficult to identify. So what, and she is the one who did the analysis on my Aunt Betty's dress. Now, what she found was that uh, there was evidence of perspiration, a lot of perspiration on the shirt, but that powder that was on Betty's dress was different from the pink um, discoloration on Jim's t-shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, evidence that something had happened there, especially when the implant was removed uh, by his physician and that it was a tiny sphere. And uh, so his physician removed it. I told Jim it had to be in his bodily fluid because Dr. Roger Lear said that these implants are now self-destructing. Right. Um, so make sure they're in bodily fluid to try to trick them. And so we did that too. Jim, uh, Jim's doctor put it into a test tube filled with Jim's blood. And then it was packaged with dry ice around it. And it was sent to MUFON headquarters, who then sent it to our laboratory. And what happened is when it arrived at the laboratory, it had dissolved. Mm. It had been a round sphere. It had dissolved. And, you know, what we uh, received a message, an email message from another state director from MUFON who said, uh, I have this implant. We have to get it to uh, the lab right away. We can't follow regular protocols because it is dissolving in front of my eyes as I look at it, wow. she said. So apparently they don't want us to have that evidence that Dr. Lear was able to acquire and sent to scientific laboratories and discovered that uh, the ones that were real, we're not going to mm -hmm. worry about those that were shards of glass or whatever, but the ones that were real had highly unusual properties. They, wow. uh, I can talk about that if yeah, you want. Like, yeah, like, one like these curious, like how could they make it dissolve unless the actual implant is somehow organic and somehow already manufactured to match the DNA of the individual that's implanted in, and then when it's removed, maybe that makes it break up. There's, you know, there's that possibility. I don't, I have no idea. I do know that those implants seem to have intelligence. They can be inserted into a person's hand or foot and travel through the body and then move up and disappear. I've had, I have, actually had the good fortune to be able to palpate one of those after uh, almost immediately after an abduction experience where it was inserted into the hand, traveled up the arm, and she was going to have it x-rayed, but before she could, it disappeared out of sight. Mm. So they seem to be programmed to go to various parts of the body. The 
the latest right now is that they seem to be going in underneath the teeth into the jaw. And, you know, these are not implants that we're seeing. We're not, they're not pegs or anything else made out of metal. These are something that's highly unusual in the jaw. There was uh, one case that I worked on where there was a little girl who there was a, a history of generational abduction in the family and she, her parents took her in uh, for her regular dental checkup. Her back tooth, tooth mm -hmm. had never been drilled by the dentist, but the dentist found drill marks that went straight down through. So it makes me wonder if they had drilled the tooth to insert an implant way down in there. I don't know. But that was strange. They could have just inserted it into her arm or her leg. Yeah, that is weird. Um, what do you think the implants are for? Well, I, I think that there are uh, several reasons for them. Of course, uh, one is a tracking device, but because it puts off a certain vibrational frequency so that the craft can find the individual with that frequency. So, uh, you know, maybe you live in California and you go on vacation uh, and in Paris, France, and you're taken from Paris. I use that example because it happened to one of the experiencers that I worked with. So um, that's one reason. Another reason is that uh, it's a communication device mm -hmm. uh, and it can monitor the human uh, what the human is saying uh, what uh, and and sometimes when uh, human experiencers speak with one another they all hear a high-pitched tone in their heads that are not normally there um, that's something that gives me that indication that it's sort of like a communication or listening device. And then another thing I think is that it monitors the health of the human body. Because in uh, the study of 516 experiencers that was completed between 2015 and 2018 by the ERT, with uh, two uh, PhD psychologists, one an academic psychologist who spent his life uh, doing social research, so in psychology. So the, what we discovered is that uh, many of the older experiencers who have developed health problems have been healed, wow. especially when they've asked for healing. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking of Jim um, earlier, the man who had the implant and the other evidence. Well, he contacted me, I believe it was in 2015 or 16, and he was extremely distressed. He had just been diagnosed with uh, lymphoma and he was scheduled to have surgery. And he was uh, really distraught. And he, he sent me photographs. He, he lived uh, in Canada, sent me photographs of his neck, very, very large. And uh, I said to him, 
first of all, you know, do you believe in God? We could both pray. And he said, yes. So we did that. And I said, well, um, I know that some people have been healed um, by ETs when they ask for healing. And I said, uh, would you be willing to send telepathic messages to your ETs several times a day to ask for healing? And I'll do the same. And so we did that. And he got back to me. It was uh, less than two weeks later. And uh, he had been able to capture a video. He'd gone to bed. It was late. It was one o'clock in the morning. And uh, he he was a man who was able to sense when something would happen. What happened is there was a beautiful orb at, uh, oh, probably about that size. Mm -hmm. And it was white on the interior, but it was of a beautiful pale blue around the outside. And it slid down the wall and it flew like a butterfly across the room. It hovered over his body momentarily and put down iridescent tendrils and then dove down into his body. He slept for at least 12 hours. And when he woke up, the there was no sign of lymphoma in his neck. Those nodes uh, were now so small that you couldn't see the enlargement. Wow. Uh, and they before that, they had been wrapped around his neck. Uh, he finally did go in for the surgery, and they removed four tiny necrotic nodes. No sign of cancer. Wow. Yeah. When, when, what I do, I show that video. That's the kind of thing that I show mm -hmm. and have the medical evidence that was given to a medical doctor in California. I have a little bit of it, but he wanted to give it to a doctor. So this doctor in California uh, was willing to accept it. He was doing uh, he was writing about uh, healing by ETs, too. So he has all of his medical evidence uh, to show that, you know, this is more than nuts and bolts. Mm hmm. He was that's healed really by an Because because that's one of the things I found interesting in, in this particular book is during a lot of these accounts, there's a, a healing aspect. It seems like afterwards, some of these people have more psychic abilities, and um, and it just it changes their entire life perspective. Yes, very much so. And uh, in Mufan's study. We had divided it into experiencers, those which were everyone who took part mm -hmm. in uh, the, the study uh, that we hadn't already eliminated because they didn't complete it or they uh, had evidence of uh, uh, lying or, um, uh, yes, I have to say lying. We had trick questions <laughs> yeah. in there and... Uh, so we were able to pick them up and, and throw those out. But um, then Dr. Don Derry, who was the, uh, the psychologist from McGill University that I'd spoken about earlier, I didn't speak of him by name, but he administered the American Personality Inventory. It was based on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which was a psychological functioning test. And this test was developed 
in order to identify those who had UFO abduction syndrome, meaning that they had the knowledge, even the secret knowledge, uh, that you would know if you had actually had an experience, plus the uh, emotional signature of an experience. There were two other groups. One was uh, wannabes or <laughs> simulators, right. and the other group uh, was uh, just members of the regular population who were trying to hoax it. But mm -hmm. we'd already thrown those out. So anyway, what we found is among that group who had UFO abduction syndrome, we called them the abductees, 45% said they had been healed by ETs. That's quite a large that percentage. That is a lot. <laughs> yes. And we found other commonalities, too, that uh, people did become more psychic. Uh, they became empathic, where they could uh, sense the... Um, the health of another person's body sometimes could, if that other person had pain, they could feel it. Uh, they could not harm another person without feeling that person's pain. And I think it's brilliant of the ETs if that's what they're yeah. doing, because I know they have in these studies that I've worked on three studies in all with more than 5,000 experiencers, we've discovered that, uh, these uh, experiencers uh, are empathic, that they have this ability. And, and these entities are brilliant because uh, they, what we discovered also in open-ended questions is that these ETs are very concerned about uh, our belligerence, our uh, savage behavior, mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, they are trying to raise human spirituality. Uh, what they say is that our technological development is out of sync with our spiritual growth. And when this happens, when they've seen this happen elsewhere, sometimes it ended in the disintegration of the species. And it could, in a nuclear war, destroy mm -hmm. all life on the planet if it had a huge environmental collapse as a result of it. Right. So, um, and they're also concerned about our stewardship of this planet too. We haven't been good stewards to it. We've exploited it for our own wealth and, and needs. And so they're concerned um, there, is, there are safer ways, uh, which they were willing to share if, if we were willing to meet with them. Uh, we, there have been attempts to, uh, for the United Nations to meet with them uh, just a year ago, year and a half ago. And so those, uh, the United Nations appeared not to be interested at that time. Um, more has come forth in, in Congress over the ATIP program and now that the Navy has admitted that the uh, Tic Tac and the UFO, the gimbal film belong to them, that uh, it's not a hoax, mm -hmm. and that Lou Elizondo actually did run the ATIP program at the Pentagon. So we've moved ahead a little bit on that, but uh, 
it seems that a lot of people are not ready right now to admit that there's anything inside that craft except for maybe robots right which is not consistent with our studies so how did they contact the united nations like did you have any information on that yes i <laughs> i worked on a study another study. I do a lot of studies and I do experimentation too. So uh, in 2016, at the Mutual UFO Network Symposium in Orlando, Florida, there was a man who uh, went to the symposium because he has been an experiencer since he was a nine-year-old boy in England. And um, He's carried on this relationship with them throughout his lifetime. They appear to him occasionally. He's been taken to craft and had missing time when he was a teenager. But he lives in the United States now and in Florida. And he was at the symposium. He met uh, a a woman who is one of the psychotherapists uh, that we make referrals to. And he met Denise Stoner, who is my co-author mm-hmm. on the Alien Abduction Files. Denise was running the Experiencer Sessions at that conference. I was speaking at the conference that year. And uh, so Denise and my friend Melanie, the psychotherapist, and this man, Kevin Briggs, and I all met for lunch after that. And come to find out, Kevin lives in the same town that I live in. And uh, the ETs had given him the information that they uh, wanted him to write to the United Nations and ask uh, on their behalf that a meeting be set up. Now, I think that Kevin is legitimate. We worked once a month for two years on this. We took equipment in. We measured a temperature change where this non-human entity was allegedly standing while communicating through Kevin. And we also were able to uh, feel a very strong tingling, like an electrical Mm -hmm. uh, tingling shock sensation through our bodies, but it wasn't painful. It, it, It was a pleasant feeling actually, and it's kind of a euphoria when these entities were in the room. So um, we do believe that this was real, and Kevin arranged to go up to New York City in February of 2020, hoping, he hoped that the, uh, that, uh, the United Nations would meet with them they would not. So he wanted them just to show themselves. But uh, he saw them one time, he said, but it was overcast and raining and cloudy. Um, They couldn't show themselves. And then he left and and came back to Florida. So uh, that's what I know so far. Do do you think that I mean, my guess would be like he's not the only one that's gone to the United Nations, you know, trying to get make contact. 
Um, probably not. Um, William Gary, who was the prime minister of Grenada, Grenada um, back in the, I think it was the early 1970s. Uh, I could be wrong on that. I haven't looked at the date recently, but he uh, had been in a craft, he stated. Uh, he went to the United Nations representing Grenada. There was uh, a conference at the United Nations. Uh, Lee Spiegel was there, Stanton Friedman, um, a number of, of other uh, UFO researchers were there. And Richard, it was Richard Gary, not William. Richard Gary uh, wanted uh, a meeting so that uh, the we could meet with these entities and uh, the united nations apparently refused my aunt betty hill told me that richard gary had attempted to meet with her he wanted to to meet her and uh, he was the i guess the state department refused to let him in hmm. after that so that he could meet her and uh, then later on uh, Grenada was over, uh, there was a war there yeah. and which we were involved and in, mm -hmm. uh, Great Britain was involved. Wow. So I don't know if that had anything to do with um, Prime Minister Gary or not. Do you think there's any truth to the story of Valley and Thor? You know, Stanton Friedman is the one who looked into that. And Stanton told me, no, I have not taken the time to really do any research on that personally. I, I have tended more to do my own research and investigation in an attempt to discover uh, what this contact is all about and what their purpose for being here, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um what about, I interview a lot of people who say that they have, are channeling beings from other, other star systems, Pleiadians, Arcturians, Syrians. Um, have, have you researched any of that? I've been researching that for a number of years. And let me tell you why. Um, my aunt, Betty Hill, had a relationship with Rear Admiral Herbert Knowles and his wife, Helen. Mm -hmm. um, he, Herbert Knowles had retired from the Navy and he was uh, on the board of directors of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. So uh, he had an interest in Betty and Barney's case. He knew that UFOs were real and he invited them to his house for brunch. And also when they were there, they met people from the Canadian military and uh, the wife of uh, Wilbert Smith, who was a radio engineer and head of the uh, Canadian government's UFO program. And uh, so they, they all got to know each other. And Betty and Barney actually ended up going up to Canada to visit uh, Merle Smith too, Wilbert's wife. Wilbert was deceased at that point. So uh, what they discovered was 
that uh, what I discovered about this close relationship was that uh, Rear Admiral Knowles and Wilbert Smith were working together uh, on information that was sort of channeled through a woman named Frances Knowles. And Frances Knowles was a neighbor of the Knowles, uh, Frances Swan, pardon me, mm -hmm. was a neighbor of the Knowles family. And she one day took a thick packet of information and gave it to Herbert Knowles. He read it, and what he discovered was that the information in that packet was uh, downloaded from supposed extraterrestrials who were into gigantic craft filled with motherships and and discs, smaller smaller things. They called them bells, and uh, that they were here concerned about our planet and they were offering to help. Now it may sound preposterous, but the information inside that packet contained advanced scientific knowledge that would have been impossible for Francis Swan to know. So uh, Herbert Knowles, Admiral Knowles, sent it to Margaret Chase Smith and it went to Dwight Eisenhower. Well, after it went to Dwight Eisenhower, and I have the, the record of this, I have it in from a number, number of different places. Uh, first, uh, I had said on radio shows that I was looking for information on uh, Herbert Knowles and his communication, uh, or Francis Swan's communication, etc. Well, I was speaking at a conference and Admiral Knowles' granddaughter brought me a packet of information that contained the correspondence files between the two men that gave me a great deal of insight into what they were actually doing and what the ETs had said. So I had that to go on. And then Grant Cameron, well-known researcher from Canada, mm -hmm. a very good researcher, uh, who has presidential UFOs, had acquired FBI files on that project. And the Office of Naval Intelligence was involved, the Air Force, uh, the CIA, the FBI, Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> there was a lot of involvement there, but it was all secret. And Grant Cameron, over time, was able to even get the information about who was on the committee uh, that attempted to contact these ETs uh, on, officially for the U.S. government. And uh, Commander Larson, who was a commander, a Navy commander, had learned from Francis Swan how to communicate with these non-humans. So he was the one, and I, I keep wondering if that meeting that Dwight Eisenhower had out in California that we he always yeah. hear about, if that meeting was not a face-to-face -face meeting, but a meeting with these ETs um, channeled through mm -hmm. Commander Larson. Wow, interesting. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I'm hoping that I can mm -hmm. learn more. So if anyone knows more, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you think like somebody who's 
the programs that the government was running on psychic phenomena were also being used to contact the ETs like Project Stargate? Most likely. I wouldn't doubt it one bit. The remote viewers, um, remote viewing the moon, for example. Uh, there is a long-term interest in UFOs dating back to 1946 by the U.S. government. And in my book, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, Stanton Friedman and I have laid it all out in uh, order by date and those who were involved. And it's based on years of archival research that we both did because he was ahead of my time. Mm -hmm. So uh, he visited far more archives than I did, but we visited some archives together. And, uh, and I visited some without him as well. And we were able to acquire a, quite a lot of information in doing that, especially in the correspondence files. So, yeah, um, it appears that there has been a long-term study. Uh, according to the FBI report, when um, they discovered that Francis Swan was not acquiring this information through normal means, you know, face-to-face, voice-to-voice, uh, they left. But there's evidence that they went there secretly and uh, continued to work with her. And of course, over time, uh, Commander Larson trained and became a communicator as well. Now, over the years, I have had many people say, tell me that they're channeling ETs and they send me the messages. Uh, I have not found consistency across board. Um, I've had one, uh, like for example, one person who seemed to have some kind of occult knowledge, O-C-C-U-L-T, not a cult, <laughs> Um, occult knowledge, uh, who uh, in the message said that uh, uh, God was not the real God, that uh, uh, Satan was the true God, that sort of thing. And so I said, no, <laughs> throw that out. You know, some people, some people think they're channeling, but they're not. A lot of this is just platitudes I'm looking for the meat in this, and I'm looking for consistency uh, between people and around the world. So I have found some of these channelers are uh, most of, mostly they don't call themselves channelers. They call themselves uh, sort of mediums. They speak to the ET and then they state what the ET has said. So anyway, um, there is some consistency there. Mm -hmm. So some of it is, I believe, real. Yeah, I would say I probably interviewed about 50 for my, mm -hmm. for my podcast. What have you found? I have found, I would say about out of the 50, maybe 35 of them are telling pretty much the same type of story or the same type of information. And I would say another... The other 15% is almost telling something that's the complete opposite. They're saying that the aliens are negative. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and, and I don't, I mean, my, my personal gut, I mean, I don't have any, you know, research or anything on it, but my gut tells me that their intention is good. Yes. Or at least most of them. I mean, I'm not saying there's not some out there that are bad, because um, there probably are, because there's just bad humans, just bad everything. Mm-hmm. But I think the the main reason for their contact is to to help humans. I think they're trying to stop something that's already happened on this planet once before, which was like with Atlantis. Right. And um, they, you know, as I said, are concerned about this planet and they're concerned that we will destroy it and uh, they're attempting to raise human consciousness and spirituality Mm -hmm. uh, to a level where our planet will survive and we will survive but they say that those who have a higher consciousness um, are those who will survive this shift that is going to occur as we uh, go to a different section of space where the vibration is higher than it is now. So those who are vibrating at a higher level uh, will survive that where it, and there will be almost be two earths at that point. Yeah. 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 And, and that's the same message that I've gotten too from, from a lot of these channels is, is that, and I, and I kind of agree with that. I can, I can see that happening, you know, and I think like maybe the people at the lower vibration are just becoming agitated by the rays of vibration and that's mm-hmm. causing some of the conflict that we're experiencing. Um, one of the things that I've also found interesting in, I think sometimes these channelers wonder why I ask this question is that I typically will ask them about dreams, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's one of the common things is um, people who are starting to raise their vibration will start remembering their present dreams and even some of their past dreams more. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so with these ETs, um, what do you think, uh, I mean, why do why are they being so subtle? Actually, wait, I'm back up a second. You know, we mentioned the um, United Nations saying, no, we don't want to invo- be involved with it. But yet the United States seems to be very involved with it. Why is that? I mean, that seems to be like a little bit of a conflict since the United States is the largest contributor to the United Nations. Well, let me uh, give you some background information Uh, dating back in time again to the 1950s, where, uh, according to the information I have from Wilbert Smith and and Herbert Knowles in their letters to one another, um, they say that these uh, ETs have offered uh, their assistance to us But in order for them to give this assistance, it has to be given equally to everyone around the world. No nation will have this technology uh, to the detriment of any other nation. And, uh, you know, I think that we just turned them down. Hmm. We're nationalistic. We have been for a very long time, you know, and, and a lot of money is made from war. 
And those, the power brokers are those wealthy people don't want to give up any of that wealth. And they tend to be the ones who are at a lower vibrational level, it seems. It's horrible. You would think it would be more beneficial and even more profitable to become, to, to join whatever it is, like a galactic federation or whatever it is, to become a, 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 a space traveling, expanding species and have access to more and more research, resources and knowledge. Yes, that's the rational way of thinking. <laughs> but now put in front of that money, power, and greed. Those mm. are the things that stand in the way. Do you think that there is a negative group of aliens also that is feeding into that fear, power, and greed aspect? Well, in the uh, Galactic Federation groups, there are no reptilians that I'm aware of. Um, and they say that although the reptilians uh, were invited, they did not want to become part of that because wherever reptilians go, they believe that they own it. Mm -hmm. So they think that the planet Earth is theirs and uh, no one else has any business here that they are going to control it. Um, a lot of people have told me they've had positive relationships with reptilians, but there is a type mm -hmm. of reptilian that I have never heard of a positive relationship with, and that is the draconian type, the type with the tail and the, the mouth that looks like, uh, or the head that looks like an alligator mm -hmm. or a dragon. Uh, they are, they tend to be negative. And I'm not, I don't believe that they, anymore, I don't believe that they are extraterrestrial in origin. The reason for that is they can attach to people. And the things that can attach to people are interdimensional negative entities who feed off fear and loathing and pain. So uh, if you want to use religious terms, they would be called demons. Right. And uh, they they just do terrible things to humans. Hmm. One of the things that, that I've wondered about that is that maybe the reptilians or negative aliens were sort of native to this planet, and we weren't. And then we came here and kind of, you know, took over a little bit and made them a little, you know, like, hey, where did this infestation of humans come from? <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you that in one of uh, my best cases, there were three people uh, who were involved. Uh, there was, just for a little background information, this took place at Chris Bledsoe's house. Uh, Stanton Friedman had introduced me to two women who were highly respected paranormal researchers. Uh, they worked together. Um, well-educated, worked together on um, investigating battlefields in the South, plantations in the South, that sort of thing, and had papers published. One was a historian, the other an archaeologist, uh, anthropologist. And so they, uh, Stanton introduced them to me, and they asked me if I could find uh, a verified abductee for them to uh, 
speak with, go mm-hmm. to that person's house to uh, set up their equipment and try to record uh, a UFO and maybe even get EVPs from non-humans. So I set, I introduced them to Chris Bledsoe with his permission, and they arranged to go to his house. And they are very thorough in what they do. They even, uh, the historian uh, does the history of the land and of the house and the people who've lived in the house, and also the genealogy of the people who lived in the house. And so... Um, they're there. They're all, they set their equipment up. It's now about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, they're standing there seeing if they can see a craft, trying to call in a craft. When one something, a bright light appears next to the moon, Chris Bledsoe says, I think that's them. And so uh, Pam, one of the women, um, starts asking questions. And uh, getting EVPs. And then the next thing they know, uh, the equipment they were holding in their hands is no longer in their hands. Hmm. They're hanging on to one another. They're weaving back and forth and they feel ill, just nauseated. They look around, they find the equipment and they had a, a Bell and Howell movie camera running in another part of the yard. They take everything into the house. And when they arrive in the house, Chris's wife says to them, where have you been? I was looking for you. You weren't there. They hadn't been aware that they had gone anywhere. And she said, do you know what time it is? No, one o'clock in the morning. So... Um, they had missing time. Um, they also found evidence on that Bell and Howell camera on that film of non-human entities coming in to their environment. Oh. Now, um, MUFON, North Carolina MUFON investigated that case. Uh, and I investigated that case, and I did separate hypnosis sessions with the two women a year apart. The women had a falling out because they had some memory. They had some conscious mm-hmm. recall, eventually, of the entities, but they were remembering different types of entities. They didn't know that different types of entities can work together on the same craft, and that's what was going on. But... Under hypnosis with Pamela, um, she was informed. There, oh, by the way, there were no uh, you know, exams on on the craft or anything else done to them. No medical tests or anything like that. And they were taken to a, a way station uh, where the craft refuels, and they uh, and Pamela was told that these entities that she saw who looked very much like humans, um, sort of Nordic type humans, uh, all fairly tall Mm -hmm. and with long hair. And uh, they, they were obviously not human beings. There were differences there. Um, They spoke telepathically to her, for example, they told her, 
that they had lived on this planet long ago and something had happened and there was an environmental collapse and they had the technology and the means to move on and they had eventually found a binary star system uh, and a planet that they moved to and uh, it's in twilight most of the time so uh, that was just interesting that this group said they had once lived here yeah that is interesting um what happened to francis swan's channelings um what she said well i think that probably wilbert smith's collection up mm -hmm. in ottawa uh, has some of it what I have are the letters between Wilbert Smith and, and Admiral Knowles with the messages that were given. Hmm. And uh, it'll, it will take me a minute to, to look if you, I can read those messages to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me go here and I have to find this presentation so that I can read it to you. Um, I think that this is it. I have so many presentations on here. It's incredible. Okay. Um, I, okay. I'm at the beginning here. I was excited because I found a letter in my, uh, that had been sent uh, to my aunt Betty Hill by Helen Knowles, Admiral Knowles' wife. And, and she was reflecting on all of this. And she said, well, Herbie not only helped her out, meaning Francis Swan, but personally endorsed her letter after he read it. Then because its contents were of vital national importance, he addressed a personal letter to Washington, which brought a group of departmental top brass to our home. Much correspondence ensued. And when, I, when they learned that the information described in her letters was not orthodox or obtained by conventional means, they withdrew their interest and went home. And she said, and I was getting tired of making sandwiches for that crowd during that time. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. But uh, that's actually not what happened. That's what Helen Knowles knew uh -huh. of what happened. But the records, um, the letters... Uh, indicate that there is more that happened. And so um, a statement by Wilbert Smith, uh, they are a, a hundred or more uh, feet in diameter. They can travel at speeds of several thousand miles per hour. They can reach altitudes well above those which should support conventional aircraft or balloons. The ample power and force seem to be available for all required maneuvers. Taking these factors into account, it is difficult to reconcile this performance with the capabilities of our technology. And unless the technology of some terrestrial nation is much more advanced than is generally known, we are forced to the conclusion that the vehicles are probably extraterrestrial in spite of our prejudices to the contrary, 
Does that sound familiar? <laughs> sounds I'm very saying the familiar. same thing now. <laughs> How many years later? <laughs> like 50 years? Yes. More than 50 years, right? Yes. More than 50 <laughs> years. 60, what, 66 years? Yeah. <laughs> um, also, these are the, the ET's major concerns. You must stop polluting the earth. Humans must become more spiritual and raise their vibrational level. We will provide competent teachers to educate all of you. There is a displaced magnetic field problem on Earth caused by nuclear explosions. We're working to repair this. And all vibration is sound. Sound waves permeate the universe and affect the human body. Become peaceful and your sound will create peace. And then Knowles wrote to Smith that out of all, this was in 56, I believe, Yes, uh, December 3rd, 1956. He wrote to uh, Wilbert Smith, out of all of this, I believe the following basic facts have been established. Flying saucers are real and come from outer space. The real important thing to know about them is why they're here. Their source and mechanics are merely incidental. Their people have contacted people all over Earth in various ways, trying to get to us a common message about coming events. No one nation, people, or area is being shown preference by them, and none will be. Any technical knowledge gained from them will be so incomplete that no nation can take advantage of it to the detriment of other nations. Absolute neutrality is a requisite in all their contacts with us because of uh, beware of all reports that show preference or partiality on their part, meaning that they that's nonsense. <laughs> and the days we are now living in come the closest to being the latter days described in biblical prophecies that mankind has experienced in the last uh, three to 4,000 years. They went on to say that the, the earth was not going to be destroyed, uh, but there would be a shakeup. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think we're probably going through that shakeup now Somewhat. with with COVID and uh, with uh, the uh, environmental mm -hmm. impact that we're yeah. experiencing. Yeah, it's also interesting that you mentioned the magnetic um, disturbance because you know, a lot of people are talking about a possible pole shift also. Yes, and and what the ETs told uh, Knowles and Smith through Swan is that that problem uh, with our magnetic fault lines is what they called them. Um, it was a problem that was caused by detonating thermonuclear bombs and when that happened, it tore into the fabric between dimensions and caused damage into the other dimensions. And that was a big problem for them. So apparently they're from a different dimension, maybe from a different planet too, and in a different star system, but their dimension is different. Or, you know, could they just be of uh, this group be? from this planet, but live in another dimension on this sure. planet. 
Why not? You know, our right. wave could be here, theirs could be there, and we set off a nuke and it messes up their world. Yes. Absolutely. Now, a statement by Wilbert Smith is, uh, I'm satisfied that Swan's contact was authentic because A, the communications are self-consistent, B, they checked well with similar material obtained uh, through other contacts for the same reasons I think are authentic, and there has been little or no opportunity for collusion, and predictions given by her contacts have enjoyed more hits than misses. So, so they've been uh, doing this for a while. They have been doing this for a very long time. They have enough data to compare accurate hits and things like that. They know. Yes. Huh. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've ever spoken with Paul Hamden. No. Okay. Paul Hamden is a man who lives in Australia. And I'm sure uh, he would love to do a radio show with you. I'll, I'll contact him. Uh, yeah. Um, I can send you his information. Cool. But I met him back in 2012. Uh, it was for the first study that I was doing on experiencers to attempt to identify the characteristics that experiencers share that are not common in the general population. So I had the experiencer group and I had the control group. We mm -hmm. had 75 in all. Uh, 50 were experiencers, 25 from the general population had never even seen a UFO. And so then we compared those. But Paul was an individual who took part in that study. And we started communicating. Um, he lived in Australia, lives, still does. So we were talking via Skype. And uh, he asked me if I would like to speak with Keek. And uh that Keek was a, a nice ET, mm -hmm. a great ET from a council that he had been talking with for quite a long time. And uh, that uh, uh, the, he had a great deal of information about Keek. He'd written uh, a book, A Primer of the Zeta Race, with a scientist from Canada, um, William Truniet, I think is the way you pronounce his name. And so um, Paul asked me if I'd like to meet Keith, and I said, sure. So Paul is there. He says that he is not a channeler. He mm -hmm. said, I'm a medium. And so uh, Paul's wife would always record anything that was said through Paul. And so I had the opportunity to meet Keith. And I didn't know if all of this was uh, delusions on Paul Hamden's part, if he was hoaxing, or if any of this was real. And I started thinking of a way to verify, attempt to verify mm -hmm. if this is real. So I eventually said to Keek, I have uh, a disease. I have a disorder and this disorder uh, is does not have a good prognosis. There's no cure for it. And uh, I've had this for a number of years now, probably about 15 at that time. And uh, would you please heal me? I, I would like to be healed. And 
he said something like, oh, another sick human. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I wasn't, really wasn't expected, expecting to be healed. But I think it was three nights later, I woke up in the middle of the night with excruciating pain in my body. And I woke my husband up and I said, I think you're going to have to call an ambulance. I don't know if I'm having a heart attack, if I'm dying, what's going on. And he said, well, just give it a little time and see if it goes away. And uh, if it doesn't, I'll take you to the hospital. So uh, the next thing I know, I'm in, I'm no longer in my bedroom. As far as I know, I'm on some kind of a table in some kind of different environment and I can sense that there are two very tall glowing entities up by my head. I can look at a screen and I can see the outline of what would have been my body on that screen lying there on the table and I can see something running around the periphery of my body and there are my organs Uh, And certain organs are highlighted in pastel colors. So uh, that's very, very strange. Um, It hurts. I I received the message that they're, they're sorry, but in order to heal my condition, I just need to tolerate this. So I do tolerate this. And uh, I wake up the next morning and I feel like I'm 25 again. There isn't an ache or a pain in my body. And here we are 11 years later, and uh, I'm, still, I'm still doing well, or maybe wow. 10 years, nine years later, I guess. That's great. From so, when so it happened. <laughs> you can't get a better confirmation than that. Yes, I have not had a relapse. I reported this to MUFON decided that I would report it uh, just to see what would happen uh, about oh, three, four, five years ago. Wow. Did uh, Teek have any other information? Um, yes. Uh, I have some right here. It's in the same presentation. <laughs> These craft are living entities, much like a bacteria. They live, breathe, function, and create. They're grown from what is, was initially a hybrid framework. The craft, was, uh, the craft are genetic, generic, genetically modified structures. Not all craft have individual operators, but there are certain parts of their DNA replicated. Hmm. So that was interesting. It is. I received a lot more information, but that was a long time ago. I don't have it in front of me. Wow. Um, I can tell you some some things that uh, I learned through Kevin Briggs mediumship. Yes, absolutely. This was a question. We each had the opportunity to ask a couple of questions once a month. This was a team of researchers, and we actually have two skeptics in the group, too. And what we learned is I asked, well, what's the difference between you and uh, just ghosts, for example. How do, how do we know? We can't see you. How do we know you're not just humans, uh, deceased humans trying to trick us? 
And what the answer I received is there are interdimensional beings that just live in the spiritual. These can transcend the dimensions from time to time. Then we have what you call extraterrestrials from different dimensions. The difference between the dimensions is only the difference in the vibrational frequencies that they exist in. So people get mistaken between the spiritual and the physical from the different dimensions. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> then, then I said, what processes used to remove human abductees through solid surfaces, such as walls and ceilings, and into craft and back? And the answer was, what you consider solid can be changed and altered. They are just atoms with electrons, which are of a certain vibration. We amplify the electrons to different vibrational frequencies. That is just the frequency of the body. And this allows it to move through wall. I'd also talked to three physicists about that. Uh -huh. And uh, they said, yes, uh, assuming that everything has a vibrational frequency, all the ETs have to do is align frequency and phase and atoms can interpenetrate that they've already done this. I, I believe it was at the CERN uh, using neutrinos. So we're, you know, oh, wow. far behind the ETs. But. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading a book about quantum physics and how neutrinos can just pass through anything. That they're passing through us constantly. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, with Kevin, too, we asked, uh, or I asked, about uh, have they attempted to contact uh, leaders of uh, governments in countries around the world or, or why don't they if they haven't? Mm -hmm. And they said, your governments are aware of our presence. They've been aware for many years. They do not want to disclose our presence to the people of your planet. It is important for the development of yourselves and your planet to be aware that we are here. We are many. We have been here before many thousands of years ago and you destroyed yourself then. And you are in a position now to do it again and we will not allow it. You know, that's the same message, essentially, that was given to Pam in that other case. Yeah. But she didn't know about any of this information that uh, we had uh, received from Kevin Briggs mm -hmm. and, and his ETs. Yeah. It's also very similar, from my understanding, to the same message that's given to children during so many um, these school landing in contacts. Yes. Yes. And... Um, there's a, a writer who has just written a book about all of the different school contacts um, that have been made over the years. You know, it's not just uh, down in uh, Africa, it's been mm -hmm. in Australia and in the United States and in Canada. Um, trying to think of his name, maybe it will come to me. Uh, also from Kevin, um, why are you here? We ask. We are here to guide and assist in the development of your species and your world. We planted your seed here and we helped to develop it. We introduce things to assist in your development. As for the other members of the Council of Eight, they are your extended families. We have a connection to our consciousness, to our souls, to our soul energy, which we all share. 
if we raise your level uh, of consciousness to a higher level, you are able to achieve more. This is what we are trying to do here. You have been to this position before and you destroyed yourself. We are fearful that you are in a position to do it again and we will not allow it this time. We will intervene. Wow. So uh, some very interesting messages. And ever since I did this experiment with Kevin and the others, um, and I had met one of these ETs who came to me, uh, his name was Zark, he's a scientist, he came to me and communicated with me telepathically. I couldn't see him, but I could feel his energy, that very strong tingling sensation. I wrote down our conversation. And then after, it's a good thing I'd written it down because I completely <laughs> forgot. So I'm wondering if that might have something to do with forgetting what happens on the craft or a lot of it. Wow. Uh, if it's that strong electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. So um, just uh, very interesting. And since I worked with Keek and the other members of the council through Kevin, uh, and I felt that tingling sensation, I've also developed this strong tingling in my crown chakra and these high-pitched tones in my head. And as I was reading that to you, this all happened to me. Wow. Pretty amazing. That is great. Um, what do you think, like, like you mentioned, uh, like, like everybody on the planet sort of has to be on board before they're going to assist us. Um, however, there is a movement with the CE5. Do yes. You, do you think it will work? taking that type of route, just getting individuals to get on board with this? Um, through CE5, I think, yes, we're doing that all over the world. It kind it's of sounds like what you're doing. by different people. Yeah. And uh, the ETs said, this is another thing they told me through Kevin Briggs, that uh, they had tried to communicate with the heads of state and, and the heads of business and in all of the different countries and they were not interested. So they then went to the people themselves. And they said that they're starting from the bottom up and that as soon as enough people are aware of this, we'll reach a tipping point where everyone will become aware. And they think that at that point, we'll be interested in working with them to raise our spirituality for the survival of our planet. Yeah. Yeah, at first I questioned the CE5 thing, and then I did an interview with Preston Dennett, and he gave me like this little exercise to do, and I tried it outside, and it worked. <laughs> and it was Preston Dennett who wrote that book about oh, yeah. school, children's mm -hmm. school, different schools around the world. <laughs> He's written a have, lot of books. Contact. <laughs> yes, he has. He's a fast writer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love Preston. He's awesome. Yes, he is. But but it's, it it does work that way, and I think we're going to have better luck through individuals doing this than relying on the governments. And and Preston too brings up a good point for re the reason why he says the reason why the governments don't want us to 
do this and to evolve spiritually is because of telepathy. If we re- reawaken our ability to have telepathy, then we'll right away we'll know who's lying and who's not. Mm-hmm. Possibly, unless you can block that. The ETs say that um, they can keep secrets. Mm-hmm. That. And they can do something so that everyone they're coming into contact with doesn't know everything that they're thinking. Right. But but, I want, but but humans might not have that ability. Right. Possibly. It. We might not. <laughs> Imagine being able to read the mind of every politician. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I took a, an FBI um type of class in how to identify deceptive body language. And that's a lot of fun to when you're looking at politicians who are uh, talking and and other people, uh, uh, podcast hosts uh, (laughs) or or, uh, people who are doing the interview. It's pretty it's fun to to watch the the body language to be able to tell who's lying and who's telling the truth. Wow. Is that something that that MUFON uses? Is also like when you're, when you're talking, doing interviews face to face, do you document people's body language and which direction they're looking and things like that? Well, I was taught this by an, a former police officer who was also connected with the FBI. And he taught uh, some of us how to do that. It's not just generally taught in mm-hmm. MUFON, but. You know, he said, well, how do you know if somebody's lying or not? And I said, well, we have to go out by the evidence. And he said, well, let me teach you this so that you'll have that uh, in, to be able to determine if someone's telling you the truth. Hmm. And it's a funny thing because I did have one woman who claimed to be an experiencer and she she um, had arranged to meet with me and she was lying through her teeth. She it exhibited all the body language that told me that uh, she was not telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently watched the, uh, a documentary where it was about Roswell and you were mm-hmm. taking old tapes of, of people's interviews from the Roswell incident and they used um, AI to tell if they're telling the truth or not. Yes, I heard uh, heard about that just over the weekend. It was Ben Hansen, who used to work for the FBI, mm-hmm. who was involved in this, and that the people uh, that they interviewed were not lying. A lot of them. Yeah, the, the ones who were actual witnesses. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think they said they forgot one liar. Yeah, there was, there was one guy who was lying, and I think it was the guy about the coffin. It was it was the under the, the mortician about he lied about the little coffin. Okay, but, I would I would love to see that, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It, it just blows my mind that case is still so so popular, and there's still so much more to to look at with that case. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you and find your books? Okay, my website is very easy. It's Kathleen with a K, K A T H L E E N dash or hyphen 
Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N.com. Very simple. My books are also professionally published. I don't self-publish. And uh, so I have professional editors and all of that. And uh, you can buy them online. You can order them from bookstores if the bookstore doesn't carry them. But just go to my website. You'll see what uh, books I have written. Three with Stanton Friedman, one with Denise Stoner, Mm -hmm. and then one with... uh, Three other women wrote small parts of it, but my name is the one on the cover. So uh, all really good books, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, other people tell me that. That's the great books. I, I love them. They, they love the books. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those online bookstores are a good place to get them. They are, you can get them as audiobooks, ebooks, or uh, some of them are in hardcover, uh, and all of them are in softcover. Awesome. So I will post a link to your website in the notes of this episode so my listeners can go there and check you out and buy your books. Okay, sounds great. Oh, this was fantastic. It was an honor to have you back again. Thank you. Great. And just hang it on. It's great for, to be with you. You too. And uh, just hang on for one moment while I play the outro and – uh, just so my listeners know, this is sort of a, a new intro, made, outro made by Damien Keller. It's a uh, brain entrainment tra- uh, vibration to help open the third chakra. Oh. <laughs> Change your life.